Beautiful to be in the house of the Lord, amen? Uh, know that there are some here who are excited to be here on this Sunday morning. You are excited to worship with the family of God. There are some people here who came begrudgingly. You just, you don't know why. You're just hoping for something. Maybe you may be struggling. You're in doubt. There's some people who are here because you're trying to holler at something and, and I don't know. But praise God you're here though. Because just to get that word and to be here, I'm just encouraged just through the music itself. I'm, I'm just spurred on. It's, although we live in unprecedented times and COVID and political divides, this is not unprecedented times for God, amen? And uh, he knows what we need, and I'm glad to be here to get this word. It's, it's what fills us up, gives us the inspiration and courage to live out a a life. Last night I was watching Black Widow for the first time and all that action and violence just made me want to drop kick somebody. <laughs> but I know that I'm not a martial artist and I will get hurt. But the reality is, is it's beautiful to be here and to get this word of God and to, to know that there is something that's going to encourage me to live godliness and to, and, to, and to spur on my brothers and sisters. So let me pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this moment. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the word that you have for us. Thank you for the series, Imitate. Let us imitate you. Let us walk worthy of the calling and be missionaries wherever you place us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. There's a, uh, this parable, this folklore of Jesus, old school folklore of Jesus hanging with the disciples and he's walking through, they're, they're taking a long journey and he tells the disciples to grab some rocks. He says, grab a stone for the journey is going to be long. And they don't know why. So all the disciples grab a, a decent sized stone other than Peter. Peter's tired and Peter's like, I'm just going to grab a pebble. And so after they travel for some time, they get to some shade. Jesus sits down and he says, let me see the rocks that you have because I'm going to turn those stones into bread. And so everybody's excited except Peter. Peter has this small pebble. So he's envious and he's frustrated. And so he knows the next time we go on this journey, which they do very soon. Jesus says, grab more stones and let's go on a trip. So this time, Peter, not to be fooled, tears down half a mountain and has like this boulder he begins to push. And so after the end of the journey, they sit under the shade and Jesus says to them again, bring forth your rocks. And he sees that Peter has this huge stone. And he says, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. And Peter looks at Jesus and he says, no, you ain't. You're going to turn this into some bread. <laughs> and so Jesus does it. He turns it into bread. But then he takes the other 11 pieces of rocks and he builds his church on that. And it said that's the reason why churches divide so much is because it was built on 11 pieced up rocks. Today, I, I want to challenge us to view what boulder are you pushing? And are you willing to allow Jesus to build his church on that rock? Or are you gonna use that for your own selfish intent? We've been talking about mending the breach between heaven and earth. And the intent of this series is to call us to see that Jesus wants us to be missionaries in every area of life. Wherever you are placed, you are a missionary. And oftentimes we've talked about missionaries, uh, oftentimes 
when we talk about missionaries in the Christian context, is only talked about in the activity you do, not in who you are. I um, became a Christian early in my college life, and I knew growing up that I just wanted to entertain. Like, that was just me. It was in me. My aunt worked in Hollywood. My father was a professional football player. I had a million cousins and, and relatives. And so in order to get attention, you had to perform. That was just the thing. And so for me, I just knew there was something in me that wanted to perform. I would throw some references out there, but then I would show my age. And I don't feel like fighting anybody today. But the reality of it is, is that I knew that I wanted to entertain. So when I became a Christian, all the godly individuals that I was around, for the most part, were people who were vocational Christians. And for y'all, for y'all don't know, Dahadi Lewis is my brother, wonderful man of God. Um, the beautiful thing is, is that although he was a pastor, he tried to give me the space to, to figure out what does it mean to be an artist or a rapper or to be in films, but also love Jesus and use that as, as a mission field. Some of y'all may know I'm a hip-hop artist. I've, I've acted in movies, some bad movies, so don't go research them. But the reality of it is, is I struggled to try to figure out what does it mean to be a missionary in the marketplace. And oftentimes what I've found is that ministries don't raise people like me to be effective missionaries in those spaces. What they do is they train us to be pastors. They train us to be expositors of the text, which is great. But what does it mean for me to be a great artist for the glory of God? And I have to figure those things out sometimes on my own. The thing is, is that the Great Commission, when God calls us in Matthew 28 to go forth and make disciples, it is not a command to be a vocational Christian, nor is it a call to abandon the vocational calls that we have or to be bogged down in church activity. However, the very moment that we come to Christ, that we come to a relationship with Christ, there is an expectation to change your responsibilities and your, accountable, uh, 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 and your accountabilities. So you're not called to a new occupation, but you are introduced to new accountabilities. So the challenge today is, I'm sure that maybe 80 to 90% of the people in this room do not work in a missions organization, you don't work in a church, you work in the marketplace, as you say even for you folks who may be unemployed. And what does it mean for you to make disciples, to be a missionary where you are? But I also want to give some caveats and some uh, wrestle with the, the golden shadow of what it means to be a missionary. Desmond Tutu said that missionaries came to Africa and they said, let us pray. And when we opened our eyes, we had the Bibles but they had the land and the resources. I love the idea of missionaries. I love that we are to be missionaries, but it comes with much baggage. Missionaries over the centuries have been agents of colonization, imperialism, political manipulation, and more. But the principle of being a missionary and being on mission is to get people to turn away from the error of their wicked ways, but not to turn away so that we can monopolize the resources and the valuables of their culture. Nor is being a missionary a cultural assimilation. Richard Twist, the now deceased Native American author and educator says, when we come to Christ as First Nation people, 
Jesus does not ask, Jesus does not ask us to abandon our sin-stained culture in order to embrace someone else's sin-stained culture. So you can replace that First Nations people with anything. When he calls you to Christ, he doesn't call you to assimilation. The call to Christ is not a call to cultural assimilation, but is a call to mend the breach between heaven and earth, which started in Genesis. And so when I look at this crowd, I look over the, the beautiful diversity, one of the challenges that we will have in this church is what does it mean to love each other despite our cultural differences? What does it mean to not just play the proximity game, but to really have authentic fellowship with one another? Because we can say we're a multi-ethnic church, but the reality is, is are we pushing our own boulders? Are we willing for Christ to build his church on top of the things which we're pushing? So the work you do, the way you live, who you are, is that in submission to Jesus? Or are you saying, Jesus, I, I have this, this aspect, but I'll give you other things. In Genesis, we see where the breach begins. And so I'm going to read, jump around from Genesis 1 through 3. But some of the scriptures will be up here. But in Genesis 1, we see, In the beginning God created the heavens and earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. God saw that it was good. Then we jump to 26. All of his creation was good. Then in verse 26 in chapter 1, he says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, birds of the sky, and the livestock, the whole earth, and the, create, and the creatures that crawl on earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. In chapter 2, we see in 16 and 17, it says, And the Lord commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Chapter 3. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you cannot eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit. We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So they eat the fruit, and then in 13 it says, So God asked the woman, What have you done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the following verses in chapter 3, God does the following. He does one, he warns Satan of his curse. Two, he warns Satan of Jesus' coming and his impending doom, of Satan's impending doom, which by we get the first good news, uh, the first message of good news and redemption. And three, he warns Eve of labor pains. Four, he warns Adam and Eve of a relational strife. Five, he warns them that the cursed ground and that it will be laborious work for them going forth. And then six, he warns them of physical death. So what has happened here? First, we must understand that God 
creates. In Genesis 1, God is first and he is in the beginning. He is, prior, he is priority, he is primary, he is preeminent, and he consumes all things. We must understand that he is the main character in all of that what we do. Second, we see that humanity's greatest struggle is accepting the fact that we are not the protagonist in every story, that God creates all things in his image, and that there was a perfect relationship between the created. But not only that, we had a great responsibility to not only create, but also to take care of that which God created. But then sin enters the picture, and we no longer want to have a relationship with God as it was intended. We no longer have perfect relationship with one another, but we also have a problem with creation. So not only did sin corrupt our relationship with God, the thing that was righteous between the both of us, our humanity, now that's corrupted, right? Imagine living in a world where there's no tension, where you and your wife want to decide on what you're going to eat, and there's a quick, decisive answer. It's not 30 minutes of, well, just eat the Thai food. We know you're going to get Thai. But then here's the thing that I think we often forget about creation, redemption, and fall is that it's not just the human relationship, and it's not just our dysfunction and our relationship with God, it's how we create that has been corrupted as well. Creation is fallen, not just humanity, all of creation. We abuse it, and it abuses us. Moses didn't spend most of chapter 1 talking about God's beautiful creation for us to ignore it when the redemption start, talk starts happening. We went from people who were perfectly content, holy in God's presence, to people who are greedy, selfish, and manipulative. Death has entered the picture, and we are now separated from God. God gave us all of Eden, said, this is yours, and we wanted all the boulders. We just didn't want the one that we were pushing. We wanted it all, and we wanted our bread now because we believe that there is a scarcity in God's riches. And so, therefore, we believe that God is limit, limited in his blessings, and so, therefore, we want it all. Adam and Eve looks over creation, and God says, you have it all except for this, and he's like, no, 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 I want it all. The breach has corrupted us, created an inversion in how we are to reflect the, the image of God, and the gospel teaches us that God is not only concerned with our personal piety, but he is also concerned with how we work. So if you have a gospel that is only concerned with your personal piety, then you have an incomplete gospel. Satan would love for you to spend hours in your quiet time to get up and take hell with you to work. He would love for you to have great affections and talk about how you love the Lord, but the work you create creates a hell for other people and pushes them to the margins. Now that we know what the problem is, now that we know that there is a problem, so I, it's not that I just want us to see that we're missionaries in every place. I want us to rework what we understand the gospel to be. The gospel is, of course, this great manifestation that Jesus came to earth, died for wretched people like you and I, but he is calling us to a great plan of redemption. And what is that great plan of redemption? What is that breach that is happening? 
In Romans 8, 19 through 21, we see that Paul is not just talking about human redemption. He's talking about a totality of creation. In verse 19, he says, For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's Son to be redeemed, revealed. For the creation was subject to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits. We also groan in ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So we see that creation, the earth, is in bondage to decay and is looking to be set free. And so he, you, as individuals who love the Lord, who have the gospel, you are in places to make substantial change. And if I can just get in my social justice bag real quick, Marx, Marxism didn't send me, Karl Marx didn't send me, Jesus sent me, so just know that. If I can just be a little critical. I meet people who say there's no such thing as systemic injustice. There's no such thing as systemic racism. There's no such thing as systems that fail us. If you believe that God created all things for his glory and that all things are now corrupted, which means our relationship is corrupted, our work is corrupted, then you believe that sin impacts our work. But praise be to God, you also believe that if Jesus is calling us to be redeemed to God, he's not just calling us to be redeemed to him just so that we can sit down and pray for 30 minutes, but he's calling us to get up and to go work and therefore to redeem the things that are once broken. So what does that mean? That sin is not just some faceless arbitrary action. Sin manifests itself through the actions and the ideas of people. And Jesus is calling us to redeem and to be a part of the redemption of all things. The gospel is the good news that restores all human relationships. The Hadi often talks about Christianity is just not about a relationship, it's about relationships. And so the testament of a Christian walk is not just your personal piety. It's how are you fleshing out the goodness of God in every area of life? And this is why you, as someone who works in the marketplace, is perfect because you get to determine what is good. You get to do good work in the places in which you live, in which you operate. You get to correct systems. You get to operate in good ideas and practices. Biblical examples is Daniel was placed in Babylon. He didn't want to be there, but guess what? He did the work of the Lord in a way that even in the midst of unrighteousness, he flourished. And God said, it's not just for your own personal benefit, it's for the, personal, it's for the benefit of others. We look at the women at the well, the woman at the well, the prostitute, who had every reason to be stoned by the law, but Jesus does something really interesting. And this is what I think a full gospel message is. He not only looks at the woman and says, look, go and sin no more, but he looks at the system which is created that would penalize this woman but allow the men to go on adult, being adulterous and fornicating, but there's no penalty for their actions. 
So here is a gospel that is not only just addressing the personal sin, but also the systems that create problems for people. Is this the kind of gospel in which we are operating and living in? I, as I told, I told you earlier, I, I watch uh, Black Widow and I love Marvel because it's one of the few shows that my whole family can watch together. And I often use this analogy that I think is appropriate for oftentimes how we are complicit in the detriment of society. I think about Tony Stark. And Tony Stark is a wonderful character in the Marvel Universe. He is a playboy, a philanthropist. He does all these wonderful things. He's a scientist, a genius, right? But Tony Stark is also Iron Man. So if you haven't watched the films, I'm sorry I ruined it for you. But it's been like 13 years. I'm sorry. Just... And Iron Man is the superhero character. He puts on the, the metal and the armor, and he goes and saves the world, right? But why does Iron Man put on the suit to save the world? It's because Tony Stark actually creates most of the problems for which t Iron Man has to save the day for. Think about the movies for you who've seen it. I, Tony Stark was a weapons dealer. So initially he puts on the armor in order to stop the weapons dealing and the destruction. He creates Ultron in Age of Ultron, which was a terrible movie. But anyway, we're going to move past that. But the reality is, is that if Tony Stark just had a better ideology of work, if he just worked better, he probably would never have to put on a cape and go save the world. And oftentimes I think about the Christian life. If we just work better, maybe we wouldn't have to go overseas and build wells. Maybe if we work better, we probably wouldn't have to go create schools because the church and Western society is a lot of ways complicit for the detriment that is happening in many countries. We look at Superman and Batman. They cause way more damage <laughs> trying to stop the evil than they do actually saving folks at times. In the book, The Tyranny of Merit, Michael Sandel quotes Frank Knight as saying, ethically, the creation of the right wants is better than want satisfaction. The creation of the right wants is better than want satisfaction. So on an elementary level, he says, just because someone can do it doesn't mean it's a good idea. On a biblical level, it says, all things are permissible, but all things are beneficial. We are plagued in our society with creating in a flaw, creating in flaw. It is in our bloodstream through centuries. It transverse, it, 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 it traverses oceans. It, it creeps into every occupation. It has no respect of age, ancestry, gender, et cetera, et cetera. Politicians scream about ethics and morals while selling their allegiance to whomever will give them power and victory. Activists Scream about despotism and greed within society only to adopt the same despotism and avarice they were once fighting. Companies talk about corporate justice, they talk about solidarity with black lives, but they grossly underpay their employees, they create imbalanced contracts and scales, and they watch those who made them billions and millions die broke. Artists and creatives choose relevance over righteousness, and oftentimes the church, who is supposed to be an agent of reconciliation, is the main cause of division and showing lack of empathy. 
This is why we need you in the marketplace. There are many theologians that talk about depravity or absolute depravity or total depravity. And I know that, you know, there's humanity who can do good things. Our humans can do good things. So whether or not you believe in total depravity, whatever, it doesn't matter to me. I, I, I know that we are wicked people when left to our own selfish intentions. Oftentimes you may watch the news and there's a crime that happens in a neighborhood and they interview the neighbor and the neighbor's always shocked. It's like, oh, I didn't. Let them interview my neighbor. I mean, let them interview me about my neighbor killing somebody. And I'm like, yeah, I saw it. I, the way that he took that trash out, it was just so aggressive. I just don't. And the reason why I know <laughs> that my neighbor has the capacity to do egregious things is because I know my own heart. I know that I, within the depths of my heart, I am a fallen, broken, messed up, ratchet man. Why do you think we have 76 Purge films? Why do we have 43 Saw movies? It's because somebody is imagining a world where this thing is beautiful. Like, this is their imagination. That's creating out of the wickedness of our heart, someone is pushing that boulder. But oftentimes, we won't think about rape, we won't think about killing, but what about cheating? What about keeping others from opportunities? What about prejudice? Are those things obstructing your view from charity and, 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 and goodwill? And the reality of it is, is Many of us don't really want to see others flourish. We want our own boulders. Sin has ruined it all. Look around. We don't need race. We don't need religion. We don't need class. And we don't need sex to hate one another. We don't. All you need is a neighbor, and you'll find a reason to hate that person. Because they invade your personal comfort. But praise be to God that the Most High has taught us that although this world will never be perfect, he teaches us how to operate in an imperfect society while redeeming all things. There is Eden, but there is no return to Eden on this side of heaven. But there is an understanding on how we are to live and operate in a broken world. And so there's Eden and there's the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Garden of Gethsemane, there is pain. If you remember in John 17, Jesus is feeling the anguish and the burden of humanity. And there's pain. There's suffering. There's unfaithfulness. Judas will betray him. But yet and still, he says, I will go to the cross for wretched individuals. Is that you? In the midst of this broken world, are you saying, I will go to work, you will place me wherever, Lord, and I will work for the flourishing and the benefit of other people? You, as marketplace missionaries, you are being individuals who are placed wherever you are, and I mean literally wherever you are, you have the opportunity to wake up, to look over the void of your Monday, and to create something that is good. 
And if you only see your work as a means of making money without contributing to the flourishing of society, then you are a parasite. An organism that lives in or on an organism of another species and benefits by deriving nutrients at others' expenses. I was in a Bible study and a pimp walked through the door. And I said to the pimp, you can't do that kind of work no more. He begged for forgiveness and his knees hit the floor with eyes to the sky. He said, forgive me, Lord. See, if a pimp was to walk through this door, we would all know the right things to say. We would say, hey, pimp, you can't do that no more. You can't prostitute people. That's, that's egregious. That work, that lifestyle is against the imago day. Not only against the person you're perpetuating these ridiculous acts against, but you have a false image of yourself. Amen. And we would all be right to do that, to challenge that individual to new work and a, to a new understanding of the image of God. However, I was sitting in church and a predatory lender walked through the door and the leader said, would you like a seat on the elders board? With a smile on his face and accolades galore, we celebrated this man even though he exploited the poor. See, the difference between a pimp and a predatory lender is that, is that one is legal and the other isn't. They both hustle. They both benefit off of the expense or at the expense of other people. See, predatory lending is the unethical practice of conducting by loan organizations during a loan process that are unfair, deceptive, and fraudulent. They're both masters of exploitation, but they just have different hustles. One of my favorite quotes is from Christopher J.H. Wright. It's in his book, Old, uh, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God. And he says, oppression is by far the major recognized cause of, po of poverty. The Old Testament asserts all modern analysis demonstrates that only tiny fractions of poverty is accidental. Mostly people are made poor by the actions of others, directly or indirectly. Poverty is caused, and the primary cause is the exploitation of others by those whose own selfish interests are served by keeping others poor. Why do you work? Who do you work for? Why do you swing the hammer? Why do you create that code? Why do you pre pre prescribe that medicine? Why do you educate? Work is not agnostic, people. Every action is informed by a belief, and you are building a kingdom. The question is, what kingdom are you building? In the book, The Prophet by Khalil Gibran, the prophet is asked to give insight to these villagers about the meaning of work, and he just gives this simple, pithy answer. He says, work is love made visible. Work is love made visible. Brothers and sisters, is your work made visible to those around you? We see that sin is into the picture, is corrupted, not only our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, but how we work and how we create but we also see now, or I want to show us how 
potentially to have a view of how we are to enter into this massive action of making all things new, but doing it in the context of community. And Brother Morgan read this text earlier in Romans 12, 1 through 11. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, I urge you to present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing and perfect will of God. For by grace given to you, I tell you, tell everyone among you to not think more highly of himself. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body and all parts do not have the same functions, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching and teaching, if exhorting and exhortation, giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy, detest evil, cling to what is good, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters, take the lead in honoring one another, do not lack diligence and zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. How do we mend the breach? There's six things that I just want us to wrestle with as we go forth. One, we must understand that our lives are not our own. And this seems very simple, right? It seems like, okay, yeah, of course my life is not my own. But this is the very reason we're here in the first place is because in the garden, the main problem is that humanity wanted to be God. Satan convinced us that God didn't want us to be like him. And so we were like, no, no, no. We want that power. We want to put ourselves on the throne of our lives. So every day we must remind ourselves that our lives are not our own. Number two, know that work is worship. And this is a struggle because oftentimes in our Christian communities, we often hear that work is a curse. That is, a, it, is a, it is a product of the fall. In Genesis 1, 26 through 29, we see that Jesus, or that God has given us the commandment to work way before there's ever sin. So if the call to work, to cultivate, to create, and to take care of that which God has given us was given before there was ever sin, then there's a reality there that the things we do is worship unto the Lord. Your work doesn't have to be tied to some social good in order for it to be worship. The mere fact that you put hands to plow is a, is a way of saying, I am operating in the Imago Dei. I am honoring God and how he creates. So every day when you wake up, try to change the nomenclature in your, like, oh, you know, I hate this job. I hate the, uh, no. no, think about it. I have a chance to worship the Lord at this place. I have a chance to change the environment, to create new culture at this place. I have a chance to look over the void and bring light to this place. But that can only happen by three, by renewing our minds daily. 
constantly reminding ourselves who we work for, why we're on missions. How do we love? How do I serve? How do I deny myself? How, whatever boulder I'm pushing, how do I submit that thing unto the Lord? Four, know your gift is not of your own benefit. It is for the benefit of other people. And you use it to bless other people. Five, we all have a role to play. That no matter who you are in this body, you are contributing to the blessing and the maturation of Christians. When people walk through this door, they are greeted by a hospitality team. If that hospitality team was rude and nasty, people probably wouldn't go to this church. I don't care how great the hottie preaches. They'd be like, there's some stank attitudes up in here. <laughs> you play a role in the aroma of a beautiful community. The musicians get up here and they sing beautifully. There's people who volunteer every week to make sure that there are live streams and that the gospel message goes forth. We are a team, amen? And each one of you has a role in taking the gospel message to places where one person couldn't do it. I don't care how talented the speaker is, they need people in order for them to, in order for the message to go forth. So no, we all have a role to play, and no role is too insignificant. But sixthly, uh, sixth point, and lastly, is to repent and repair. As we see throughout here that God has given us different roles and responsibility, calling us not to be, uh, to be without hypocrisy, to love one another, to not lack zeal, to be fervent, to serve the Lord, and to know that some of us may need to reevaluate why we work and what we do. And when you reevaluate and you see, you know what, maybe I am not working as unto the Lord. How do I repent? And see, oftentimes in the Christian space, we, we just think repentance is just saying, oh, my bad. I know I slapped you around. I know I abused you. And I know I manipulated you for centuries or years or whatever, but my bad. No, 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 no. Repentance is not only turning away from that act, but saying, what must I do to make that thing better? Zacchaeus in the scriptures is a man who exploits his community as a tax collector. And this encounter with Jesus revolutionizes his work, amen? And this wee little man goes back and he says, the wickedness that I perpetuated in this community, I am going to pay in recompense. I am going to to, to repair, I am going to give, here goes that social justice word, reparations. This is a biblical thing because he recognized the evil that he participated in. And just the mea culpa is not good enough. But the, the, the real repentance is saying, I must do something about the wickedness which I contributed to. And so some of us in this room may have contributed to some things that we must push up against. We must speak to. And that may mean losing jobs. That may mean losing friendships. That may mean awkward conversations. But it's more important to be faithful to God than to faithful to man. Worse than being successful in this world is climbing the ladder on the wrong wall. What does it mean to be called? So, I want us all 
to understand that God has called you and he's placed you where you are. But maybe part of your repentance is realizing, you know what, maybe the occupation I've chased is really my own selfish interest. Maybe I've chased this simply because I have this vanity about me. Um, And oftentimes in the scriptures, what we see is people are being called to a need, not necessarily what they're great at. Now, I'm not saying don't do things you're good at, but what I am saying is be sensitive to the needs around you. Because in the scriptures, what we see and what I see oftentimes is that people didn't have the luxury to say, oh, no, God, this is what I want to do. Oftentimes, it's the inverse of that. It's God sees a need and he surveys the crowd. He says, I want you to serve me here. And then oftentimes what follows that is that individual saying, Lord, I am not qualified. You may have picked the wrong individual. And God's saying, you know what? I didn't really ask you if you think you're qualified. I've called you. And guess what? In Ephesians, I will give you all the spiritual gifts and, and resources in order to accomplish this task. Is there a need that you've been avoiding? Is there a call that God has put before you that you know you should probably operate in? But the one thing I will say is that we are all like Daniel. We are all like, the, like Esther, that we are placed in a palace. This is a palace, America. And if our only goal is upward mobility in this palace and not the concerns of other people, then we believe our God is a slumlord. Because all he cares about is our own wealth and our own benefit, but not the benefit of other people. Great people in the scriptures use their platform, use their position for the benefit of other people. And I know you are in places where you can use your platform, your resources for the benefit of other people. To the adults in here, understand that your work contributes to the flourishing of society. College students, I am sure that Josh and, uh, and Justin are telling you that don't choose careers simply off of career uh, 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 financial aspirations. Think about the good that you can do and say, Lord, equip me to be a catalyst, a missionary in this particular space. To those who have children, understand how you talk about your work is passed down into your children. If you're constantly complaining about work, if you're constantly grumbling about the places in which God places you, then understand that your children are never going to be content either. G.K. Chesterton talks about contentment, and he, he uses a quote. He says, contentment ought to mean in English like it does in French. It's not to be reserved to the addict. Like if you live in a house, you're, you're reserved. He says, It's understanding all the blessings that the addict provides while aspiring for better. And so wherever you are, aspire to do better, aspire to do something differently, but understand that God has placed you there and there's benefit, there's blessing, there's opportunity to understand and grow in contentment. So as we understand what it means to be a missionary, I just want us to to wrestle with this understanding of a more robust gospel. Oftentimes, when I thought about what, it, what the gospel was, I only wanted to tell people that they were sinners and God wanted to punish them. And in order for you to be in right relationship with God, you must repent right now and have a perfect relationship with God. And that's part of the story. 
But I feel like that leaves a lot out because we often start the, the, the evangelism tools and methods we have and the gospel message in Matthew, in the New Testament. But what if we started our gospel message in Genesis? Not just with activity, with things we do wrong, but who we are and where we went wrong. Understanding that we were created to have perfect relationship with God, relationship with one another, and a relationship with creation. And when all that failed, then our gospel message is, do you want to know a Savior who not only wants to redeem you from the, from the fiery pits of hell, not only do, will, he, will He save you from eternal damnation, He will give you new purpose and how to relate with one another, but He will give you new purpose and how to work as well. This to me is a beautiful message that doesn't just say, okay, oh, now that I've gotten up from my prayer, prayer repent, repentance, I can just go live life that as long as I'm cool with God and I seem to not be in strife with other people, then I can create a living hell. But God has called us to redeem all things, our relationship to our work. Cultivation happens in your vocation and the workers are few. You can be called, but the calling must first change you. I'm encouraged by missionaries I've met and I meet. For instance, Pam's a podiatrist. She has beautiful feet. Raheem is a boxer and he's beaten the best, but the toughest fight is when he's daily fighting his flesh. I know a doctor, his name is Jason, but he prays that the Lord keeps working on his patience. Sarah works in fashion, but she's no slave to the dollar. She's clothed in righteousness, whether white or blue collar. Jimmy is a fisherman, and he's found new purpose. He's fishing for souls, but he calls it networking. Lane works at a law firm out in Las Vegas, but her favorite part of work is the cross-examination. Keisha owns a bakery with her husband, Ramon. They always tell their kids not to live off that bread alone. Keith plays basketball, and everywhere he goes, he has a defense for the faith while reaching for his goals. Theo is an officer, and this might sound crazy, but he's the only cop I know who wakes up to die daily. My cousin at the IRS, I know we hate the IRS, but his name is Thomas. On many different levels, he deals with false prophets. Cultivation happens in your vocation, and the harvest is plenty. But you don't have to be an architect to rebuild your city. Let me pray for us. Lord, there is, or there are, Many people in here who are wrestling with who they are, why they do what they do, and what they should do. There are people who've lost jobs. There are people who have significant uh, uh, a loss in these times. But let us all know that despite our current situations, wherever you place us, you still are with us. We still have purpose. That the activities we do don't necessarily end up define us, that we are missionaries, we are children of God, no matter where you place us. That we are to be loved, we are loved by you, and our work and our lives are just a manifestation of the great grace that you have given us, the call to cultivate, to make things beautiful in your image, to have all things return to a reflection of your goodness, 
to repair the broken relationships with one another, but then to also find ways in which we can create and cultivate the raw materials of this world for your glory. This is no easy task, and oftentimes it's overlooked. But Lord, I pray that we would find ways in our heart and our soul to see everything we do as something to bring glory to our wonderful Lord. It is in your wonderful name we pray.